Hello everybody, welcome back to the Through the Psalms podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Psalm 16. This is a psalm of David, and the superscript, or superscription says a mictum of David. Now, the word mictum, we're not sure exactly what it means, but the King James Study Bible says it means contemplation, so you could consider this a contemplation of David. Uh, other psalms that use this word mictum in the superscription are Psalms 56 through 60. Uh, I looked up uh, some resources on this to try to get a better grasp of what it meant, and uh, it could mean an engraving. Uh, there's a relation to another Hebrew word, uh, katum, and so there's this idea of engraving. Uh, also in Isaiah 38, 9, uh, a similar word is used to talk about Hezekiah's writings. But anyway, I don't want to go too deeply into that. Let's just get into the psalm. Uh, psalm 16 is quoted twice in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 28, it quotes uh, Psalm 16, verses 8 and 8 through 11. And then also in Acts chapter 13 and verse 35, it quotes uh, Psalm 16, verse 10b. Um, the outline of this psalm, uh, the first part, verses 1 through 8, uh, deal with the attitude of the righteous man um, as far as his life, the life of the righteous man. And then verse 9 through 11 um, talks about the death of the righteous man and the hope that the uh, righteous man has in death. As far as classification, um, there's a couple of possible classifications for this psalm. Uh, the King James Study Bible classifies this as a psalm of confidence, uh, but also some sources consider this a messianic psalm because of the last uh, two or three verses uh, deal with the resurrection of Jesus. And we'll talk about that more here in a minute. The Bible commentator Warren Worsby, he outlines this psalm uh, in four parts, he says verses 3 and 4 talk about the good fellowship uh, that the righteous man has. Verses 5 and 6 talk about the good heritage uh, that the righteous man has. Verses 7 and 8 talk about the good counsel. And then verses 9 and 11, the good hope. Well, with that as a way of introduction, let's go ahead and read the psalm and then we'll discuss it. So, Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee. But to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou, ta thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. Verse 7. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, 
and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Okay, so going back to verse 1, David asked the Lord to preserve him or to watch over him, to keep him safe. In Job 7.20, Job calls the Lord the preserver of men. In Jude 1, it talks about how those that are sanctified are preserved in Jesus Christ. So God preserves us, he protects us when we put our trust in him. The NIV in verse 1 says, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. Of course, a refuge is a place of safety or protection. And we see that a lot in the Psalms. David trusting in the Lord as his place of safety and protection. Now, verse 2, I want to read it in the NIV because in the King James it's a little hard to understand, verse 2, but... In in the NIV it says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. The King James says, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee, or my goodness is nothing apart from thee. Would be an alternate translation for that. This reminds me of when Jesus was talking in John 15, 5, and he was talking about he's the vine and we're the branches. And Jesus said, apart from me or without me, you can do nothing. And when I read here in Psalm 16, 2, that's just another reminder to me that Apart from God, we do not have any good thing. We're dependent upon God for everything that we have. And and without Him, we can do nothing. Uh, all of our blessings, all of our strength, all of our righteousness is from the Lord. And sometimes people become deceived and they think that if they're blessed, it's because they've uh, acquired it by their own hand or their own strength. Uh but the Bible is clear that anything that we have that is from the Lord, every good gift is from above. Uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, the children of Israel were warned, I think it was Deuteronomy chapter 8, they were warned that when they go into the promised land, not to forget the Lord and to start to think that the blessings had come from themselves. They, you know, they were warned to remember that everything they had came from the Lord. And so we would do well to keep that in mind too, that all of our blessings are from the Lord and we don't have anything apart from the Lord. All right, in verse 3, it says that God delights uh, in his saints. Uh, As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight, is the NIV there. Um, So God delights in his people. Uh, we see that in the Old Testament with Israel, even though Israel was wayward and rebellious a lot of times, 
they were still God's chosen people and he loved them and he cared for them. And in the New Testament, you know, his church, um, believers in Christ, he cares for his saints and he delights in his people. He takes care of them. Verse 4 is a warning against idolatry and worshiping false gods. Uh, it says that their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another god. And of course we see that all throughout the Old Testament with Israel. They were constantly tempted to turn to false gods and to worship other gods. And we see the horrible consequences to that. And we also see the pagan nations around Israel and the false gods that they worshipped and how judgment was brought upon them as well. And so idolatry is something we definitely want to stay away from. Uh, you know, one of the Ten Commandments is that we shall only, you know, thou shall have no other gods before me. So we're only to worship the Lord and no other gods. And the New Testament we find out that covetousness is another form of idolatry. So sometimes we're tempted in the modern day to think that since we don't bow down to a golden statue or an idol, that we're not committing idolatry. But the New Testament says that if we are covetous and we love money, that that, that is a form of idolatry. So, you know, anything that we put before God and worship more than him can turn into idolatry. Uh, in his book, The Treasury of David, um, Charles Spurgeon, he quotes Matthew Henry, and he says, They that multiply gods multiply griefs to themselves. For whosoever thinks one god too little will find two too many, and yet hundreds not enough. I think what he's getting at there is that there's never, if you start worshiping many gods, there's no, there's no end to it. It's just you keep increasing the number of gods and and uh, you, the sin just keeps multiplying. And usually when it comes to false gods and pagan religions, there's usually some kind of immorality or sin associated with that god. Um, and I think about, I think it was Bacchus, the god of drunkenness in, in ancient Greece, uh or maybe Rome, I can't remember if he was a Greek god or a Roman god, but uh, he was the god of drunkenness. And so a lot of those gods, they had a certain sin or a certain um, activity associated with them. And so uh, idolatry and immorality usually go hand in hand. But the psalmist here says that he will not um, offer any kind of drink offering uh, to these false gods. And he even goes so far to say that he will not even take up the names of the false gods on his lips. Um, so he considered this a, a serious sin and he, he didn't want any part of it. Okay, in verse 5, uh, he talks about the um, inheritance of the righteous. And he says that... Um, that the Lord is his portion and his inheritance. Um, and that he has made his lot secure. So we need to remember that as God's people, that the Lord is our inheritance. And uh, our reward is not in this life, but our reward is in the next life. And uh, Jesus said, um, 
He talked about our treasure, and he, he told us to lay up treasure for ourselves in heaven, and where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. So uh, we need to remember that the Lord is our inheritance. He talks about how the boundary lines uh, fall for him in pleasant places. I like this verse. Uh, the Lord is good to us. Uh, he makes the boundary lines, he makes our inheritance fall to us in pleasant places. You know, uh, back in those days when somebody inherited land, they would have uh, boundary lines. And what he's saying is the land that I inherited had pleasant boundaries. It was a large piece of land in, that is, was in my favor. And he talked about his delightful inheritance. Um, or in the King James, it says a goodly heritage. And so God will bless us with an inheritance where the boundary lines fall to us in pleasant places. So that's an encouraging verse for us. Verse 7, it talks about the counsel of the Lord. He, he will praise the Lord who counsels him, or it says, who counsels me. Um, it talks about um, at night, in the night, <clears throat> excuse me, in the night seasons, it says, my rains also instruct me. And when you in the King James, when you see the word rains, it, it's literally kidneys, but it means heart, the seed of the emotions. So you can kind of um, substitute the word heart there. So you can picture the psalmist laying on his bed at night, thinking about things, and he says that his heart instructs him in these matters as he thinks about the counsel of the Lord and what God has told him to do. So the godly person, the righteous person, is someone who considers the counsel of the Lord and considers what God would have him to do and ponders it in his heart. And verse 8, he says, this is a great verse, he talks about how he set the Lord always before him. And he, uh, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved or I shall not be shaken. So there's a security and a confidence because of his trust in the Lord. Uh, he shall not be shaken or moved. Those that are grounded in the word of God and grounded in sound doctrine and grounded in their relationship with the Lord, uh, there's a certain stability to their lives. Uh, you know, in the book of Ephesians, it talks about people that are carried about with every wind of doctrine because they don't know what they believe and they're not grounded in the truth. Just whatever teaching comes along, they go with it. And so they're like a uh, they're just carried about like a leaf in the wind. There's no stability to the to their beliefs or to their life. And that's why it's so important that we get in the Word of God, we know the Word of God, and we believe the truth, and we know what we believe, and that will add a certain sense of stability to our lives, and we won't be deceived and led astray by every false teaching out there. In verses 9 through 11, these are messianic verses that refer to the resurrection of Christ. And you might say, well, how do you know that? Well, if you turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 29, Acts chapter 2 verse 29, this is Pentecost and when Peter was preaching and he quotes... Um, this verse or these verses 
uh, in the, up above. Actually, he quotes them in the verses above. Uh, let's see here, verse 27 and 28. So Acts 2, 27, 28, he quotes Psalm 16. And then in verse 29, this is Peter speaking. He says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher, or his grave, is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. So what he's saying is that David was a prophet. He foresaw uh, Jesus' resurrection. He was prophesying of the resurrection of Christ in this psalm. And so basically what Peter's saying is that this can't, these, these verses in Psalm 16, they're not referring to David because he died and Peter referred to his grave. He's saying they're referring to Christ who rose again from the dead. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know that uh, God promised that that there would always be someone on David's throne and that Christ the Messiah would come from the line of David and sit on the throne of David. And so Peter is telling us that these verses in Psalm 16 are a prophecy uh, about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, that word in verse 10 that says, uh, the, the word hell there is the word Sheol, or Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. And in the Old Testament, that refers to the abode of the dead. Now, in the New Testament, the word for hell is Hades or Guiana, uh, which refers to the lake of fire. But in the Old Testament, when it talks about hell or Sheol, it's usually just referring to the place of the dead or the grave. And so when he says, Thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Um, the NIV there says, uh, Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your holy one see decay. We know from the the New Testament that Christ was in the grave for three days and then he rose again. And so this is a prophecy of the resurrection of Christ. Of course, it kind of has a dual meaning because it also applies to believers that we have this hope of resurrection as believers in Christ. And David, too, had this hope that one day God would raise him from the dead. And so in verse 9, he talks about how his heart is glad and he, um, he, his tongue rejoices and his body will rest secure or rest in hope 
So this is the hope of the righteous man, the resurrection. We have this hope because of Christ. And this is actually prophesying of Christ and his resurrection. Okay, so if we turn to Acts chapter 13 and verse 35, Acts chapter 13 and verse 35, it quotes this psalm again. You always want to see if if the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, then you want to read that and see that interpretation. It sheds light on what the verse means in the Old Testament. Okay, so Acts 13, 35 says, Wherefore... Um, he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That's the verse we just read in Psalm 16. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now this is uh, Paul speaking here, and he's saying similar things to what um, Peter said. He's saying this: these verses back in Psalm 16 don't refer to David, because we know that David died and is still in the grave, or at least his body is. Uh, the, and so he's saying these verses apply to Jesus and his resurrection. All right, so in conclusion, as we think about this psalm, uh, this is a psalm about the attitude of the righteous man, both in life and in death. But ultimately, this is a psalm about the hope that we have for eternal life through Jesus Christ and the hope of resurrection. Now, I've always liked verse 11. He talks about how the Lord will show him the path of life. And, and we know that, uh, you know, in Psalm 1, it talked about the two paths, the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. Well, here the psalmist says again, you will show me the path of life. And the path of life is to put our faith in Christ, to trust in the Lord, and to um, follow Him and His ways and live according to His will. And he talks about uh, that in the presence of the Lord there is fullness of joy, and at His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So you have life, joy, and eternal pleasures when we follow the Lord. So this psalm is very encouraging to us, and it gives us hope, and we also realize that our hope is ultimately not in this life, but in the life to come and in the resurrection. Well, that is all I have for this week, so I hope you enjoyed it, and I pray that you have a wonderful week. May God bless you. Thank you.